0: Hello, I am Lieutenant Colonel Sam Padman from the Centre for Australian Army Leadership. Uh, Welcome back to the Australian Army Leadership uh, podcast series, uh, the official podcast for the centre itself. Uh, On this episode of the Australian Army Leadership podcast series, we are very fortunate uh, to be joined by our first non-uniformed guest, Dr Gemma King, who joins us today via phone from Queensland. Gemma, welcome uh, and thank you for your time today.
1: Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated.
0: Excellent. Hey, Jen, before we get into it today, I might just take an opportunity now to uh, potentially slightly embarrass you, but more importantly, introduce you further to our listeners um, and then take them through some of the topics we'll discuss today. So, okay, what, um,
1: <laughs> go for
0: it. <laughs> thank you. I, uh, ladies and gents, Dr. King is the founder and director of uh, Biopsych Analytics a company specialising in advanced human performance optimisation. Gemma has been a consultant to Defence, uh, the Australian Institute of Sport, the Olympic swim team and is also a research fellow at UQ and a lecturer to Sydney Uni MBA program. Uh, Gemma has previously worked with us here at the Centre for Australian Army Leadership as both, both a guest speaker at our 2019 Australian Army Leadership Symposium uh, which can be found on The Cove for our listeners who have access to The Cove as well. Uh, and Jem also came and supported us at our Advanced Leadership and Human Performance uh, Seminar, which we held late last year up at Kokoda Barracks. Today we are very fortunate uh, to have Dr. King on the show. Uh, we're going to cover th- five topics today. You know, those, those topics are firstly understanding the neurobiology of effective teaming, Uh, We'll then explore establishing uh, rapid trust, rapport and psychological safety. Uh, We'll talk about managing stress as a team in volatile, uncertain, complex uh, and ambiguous environments, something that will be, uh, I suppose, central to where we're going in an accelerated warfare environment uh, and what the future operating scene or battle space could look like. Uh, I'm then going to ask uh, Dr King about her thoughts on what prohibits inter-team cohesion Uh, some ways we might get around that uh, and some hints and tips for our listeners. Uh, And then finally, to finish off, um, because everything we do, we do well as a team, I'm going to ask Dr King on her thoughts. Uh, What are the top five factors to increase inter-team effectiveness? So quite a jam-packed podcast today. Uh, Gemma, thank you again, and, and I look forward to the conversation.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, lots of really interesting topics.
0: Excellent. Hey, Jim, we might jump straight into it. Um, If I can, I suppose I'll lead the conversation to start with. uh, I'll I'll pose a question for you. Look, turning now to the topics we've got at hand, um, arguably in leadership there's no more important factor than reciprocal trust between the leader and the follower. Now this sounds simple, um, but as we know in practice, it's much more complicated to learn how to interact with others in a way that increases trust um, but importantly, how do we also avoid behaviours that may destroy it? Uh, yeah, Sam,
1: you're so yeah. right.
0: Yeah, thanks, Jim. So, so I suppose over to you. How do we get after that? You know, how do we really establish that trust and rapport and then enhance it moving forward?
1: Yeah, you're really right. I mean, trust is incredibly precious and it's so fragile. Mm. And I think without it, you just really can't build a high-functioning team. So, yeah, you know, I'll talk. I'm going to talk about that. There's some basic formulas that you can. Used to engender trust in yourself as a leader but also yep. you know how you can get um the team to trust each other and then how do you build rapport with like external teams so what i think um really important is to understand some basics about our evolutionary history yep. and the vital role that teams had for survival of the human race and in doing so like it gives you context about why do our brains and our neurochemistry work the way they do so i'm just going to go back you know 200,000 years and to when um, you know humans started to evolve when they stood up you know as homo sapiens and got into teams yeah. or tribes and you know back then being part of a tribe was really an essential factor to survival um, like if you just imagine if you were some you know skinny lone savannah bushman like mm, you would have been yeah. really easy lunch for a saber toothed tiger or whatever was going to eat you back then of course but you know if a bunch of you got together and, and cooperated and you started chucking rocks simultaneously you became like a formidable, organised fighting force, yeah, and I think yeah. that's what makes humans being part of a group so effective. So, when you think about it, um, you know, we developed some really clever neural architecture and some biochemistry that helps us navigate through group life and helps us cooperate cooperate with others and yep. you know understand what others are thinking and feeling, and then it helps us manage the dynamics of the group and really. The point of it is so you remain part of this group and you you remain part of a team and a tribe because, you know, the only way to survive back then was to be part of a group. Of course. And I'm just going to talk about a really important part, and this is something to remember when we talk about modern teams, is that if you were expelled from a group, this meant certain death. And, you know, back then it was a lonely, you know, probably pretty morbid and violent death. Yeah. So, um, you know, our brains have developed this, you know, hardwiring to constantly scan the environment for in-group and out-group indicators. So, like, you know, am I in? Am I safe? Am I accepted? Am I going to be, you know, fed and protected? Or am I going to get rejected? And my primitive brain, that's kind of like a mortal threat.
0: Yeah, Okay. So, so it's sort of imprinted uh, on the brain back then, but also still now to an extent.
1: Yeah, like we still have this very you know, primitive ancient hardware in our modern skulls. And I think what po- people don't realize, and particularly leaders, is that humans spend a huge amount of time and cognitive resources sort of analyzing our place in social in the social hierarchy and our relationships with others. Yeah, okay. And I think there's, a, there's an article in the Journal of Human Nature and um, they found that 70% of what we talk about is actually related to social matters. And that the reason we've got such a big prefrontal cortex is just precisely to house all of this social information. Right. Yeah. So, And further to that point, we have this really potent social threat detection mechanism. So when we perceive that we're potentially out of a team, um, it triggers your amygdala. And so this is a part of your brain responsible for the threat response. And this is when you set off that chain of hormones and chemical reactions that Make your body ready to flee or to fight, you know, potentially alone in a dangerous world. So, another really fascinating point on this is that, and it's super important to remember as a leader, is that, you know, um, neuroimaging studies have shown that the parts of our brain that light up when we detect rejection are the same parts of our brain involved in physical pain. Oh,
2: so, right, eh?
1: Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, you know, you know, you're feeling when when you get rejected. It actually yeah, really yeah. hurts. You know, feel it in your chest, and so this is basically, um, you know, Mother Nature's way of saying, stop what you're doing, do something different, or you're going to be booted. And it stops us from being like an, an annoying loser, and you know, turns us, you know, stops us from being a loner, which is going to end up being a, a dead loner. Of and course. So,
2: yeah.
1: Um. There's research to show that if you ever get um dumped by your partner they say take Panadol <laughs> 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 because it because it actually works on the same parts of the brain as physical pain. Oh, like, right. Don't go taking okay. the whole packet or anything, but just, <laughs> <No>. you know. It's <laughs> uh,
0: fascinating. So it, it's a built-in mechanism that we've got. We've always had it and it's still there today.
1: Yeah, Yes. Yeah. So basically, um, you know, this is, you know, going back to your question about, you know, yeah. how does a, a, lead, you know, a leader build trust, why does this matter? Well, we know that, you know, Trust can be lost in a second. Of and course. it's very, you know, it's primitive and it's not always logical, but um, it goes back to this hardwired innate primitive neurobiology. And yep. when you know this, it kind of helps you. And there's actually a formula or what we call a, a set sort of necessary preconditions that exist in order for people to be able to trust you. Yeah, okay. And yeah, there's a few academic variations, but the basics to remember is A, B, C. Yeah, okay, okay yeah. So I'm going to go through what they mean. So just remember ABC. ABC, so got A it. is ability yeah. or competency. So this is um, when, you know, your team, your subordinates want to know that you actually have the skills and the experience to lead the team. Sure, right? of so course. They want to know that you, you know what you're doing. It's and your competence,
0: isn't it, as well, if I could look at it that way?
1: Yeah, it's just pure, it's competency. And then there's um, B for benevolence. So this is where you um display that you genuinely care about the team. Yep. And then the C is consistency and reliability. And so basically that you're going to do the things you say you're going to do and you're going to do it on a regular basis.
0: Ah, of course,
2: yeah.
1: Yeah. And in fact, you know, in, in, when you're talking about consistency, really interesting fact that people would rather that you're consistently grumpy yes than yep. consistently kind.
0: Yeah, okay, it's fascinating. So instead of um, when something happens, you know, you go from your normal state through a conflict sequence into a totally different person, which is probably almost unpredictable. Uh, what mm-hmm. you're saying, if I can sort of read back to you, is people would like to be able to, I suppose, predict you more or, or you, you're a, a, a more, I don't know. Yeah, you know, people want to know what they're going
1: to get. They want to know that if I do this, he's going to do that? Um, of course. people don't know, that creates an enormous amount of uncertainty in your brain and actually creates stress hormones and, um, you know, does a whole lot of negative things to your cognition. But, you know, just going back to that formula, um, to be an effective leader, those things need to come in a in a specific order. So, Sam, can you guess out of the A, B and C which one needs to come first? Uh, I'm
0: going gonna, I'm gonna to throw an absolute guess at this one, but A because it's first in the uh, alphabet?
1: No, but that's – I mean – Usually, the, the response you get people, okay. Is saying, okay yep. As a leader, I've got to come across as competent, of course, and that I've got to demonstrate my abilities. But actually, yeah, it's B. Oh, the right. okay, warmth. Yeah, wow. And, and I'll and tell so you why. why. There's, yeah, there's, there's heaps of research, and there's a, there's, a primitive neurobiological reason why. So this all, you know, comes off the back of Harvard professor Amy Taddy. So she's done a whole lot of research on this, and basically, warmth must become before displays of confidence because, like, I don't know if you've heard the old adage, no one cares about how much you know until they know how much you care?
0: Yes, I have, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's true because what happens when people uh, come across a new situation or a new person or a leader, their brain does um, three things, okay? So this is all subconscious but, and, and every brain, human brain does this. So they ask, A, are you dangerous? Yep. You know, are you going to hurt me? And then once they're satisfied that, no, you're not dangerous, so ask them to be. Can you be one of us? Are you like me? Yeah, okay. And then only once that, you know, you have satisfied those two questions can people assess whether or not you're competent. Right. Um, because yeah. these are fundamental basic needs to know. Uh, are you going to hurt me? Are you one of me? And only then do I care whether you can do stuff well.
0: Right, yeah, fascinating. So,
1: as a leader it's really important to remember that warmth should always come before competence. And because if you're like high warmth and high competence, what that does, it results in admiration. And so you're actually perceived as a charismatic leader. Yep. But yep. if you are one of those leaders that portray high competence, but low warmth, research has shown and anecdotally, you might know this yourself, that it creates mm. envy yes. and yep. not very likable. Um, people may respect you, but they may not want to follow you. And so, you
2: yeah, Sorry?
1: Yeah, this is like, the, you know, the high-tech guy that you, you, you need, but you, you wouldn't, you know, ask that for a beer or something.
0: No, certainly. So you're really talking there, Gem, to the the human touch and the human endeavour aspect of leadership there itself. So whilst you still need to have, um, you know, be sound of character as a leader, be confident in your role, you know, it's really about having that human understanding as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. You need to de- demonstrate competency. Like, you don't want to be that really high warm guy, low competency. Who's like the, you know, the nice guy who you know everyone sort of takes pity on. Yes. Um, and you don't want to be that low warmth, um, you know, high competence person, which is you know the competent asshole, or you don't want the incompetent asshole. So <laughs> it's really important to just establish that first, and then and then comes next because people's brains are, are scanning the environment and they actually can't see. Technical, they can't hear technical information
2: yep. you know
1: instructions if you're if, if that primitive part of the brain hasn't been sort of soothed and, and satisfied
0: yeah fantastic so,
1: yeah and also like you've better you've better remember as a leader that emotional contagion is a very potent phenomenon and that how you show up as a leader and what you give off is super contagious particularly when you're in a stressful situation. Right,
2: so it's okay. really
1: important to set your emotional state before you go into a situation where you go into that need to influence people because whatever you're feeling, they're going to get it. It's um, very potent.
0: Is it really the you rubbing off on them as the leader? You know, and it goes back to the point we spoke about before with conflict sequence, you know, how emotional you get or how you may overreact to a situation then has a direct you know, effect on the, on the people working with you. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Jim, you've raised some fantastic points. If I can uh, talk a little bit um, about the trust side of the house. You know, you spoke to trust as a formula uh, that's key for teams. You know, um, another way, I suppose, to talk about it is trust as a dividend. You know, the more trust you have, the higher the dividends, the quicker um, jobs or tasks or mission sets get done. But conversely as well, the less trust you have, the lower the dividend. Um, and I think we can all look at our workplace and say, "Isn't it funny? Those who I trust, I can talk with openly. We seem to get jobs done quickly. We don't need to have as many orders or details. But then those we don't trust, it takes twice as long to do the same thing." So with that, then you know, as an army, you know, we spoke about the ABC um, approach to it, and I've got a a, a good baseline understanding now. I'll, I'll go away and keep doing some more work on them. But, but how else might we really get about you know, fostering trust, um, especially when we focus heavily uh, on mission requirements and mission outcomes?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's super important that, um, you know, trust is a funny thing. If it's like it's a reciprocity. If you demonstrate that you trust individuals, they will become trustworthy. So yep. it's almost you have to make yourself a little bit vulnerable, give a bid,
2: okay. and, then,
1: and then take a risk. And then let them demonstrate that they are trustworthy. But if you come in and not trusting people automatically, they won't demonstrate that they're trustworthy. Yeah, and this goes to you know one um, concept that's really gained prominence lately um, across you know organisational behaviour across many organisations, and it's the concept of psychological safety. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I know there's probably concrete things out there. They're going, oh, sounds a bit fluffy, you know, blah blah, <laughs> but. Actually, the concept of site safety is critical for high-performing teams. And, and actually, Google, after doing like this really hardcore deep dive analysis and what made their teams effective, like they analysed hundreds and thousands of data points, yeah. they found that site safety was the most predictive factor for team success. And this was above coding skills or anything else.
0: Oh, okay. Can you sort of explain a bit more in detail, psychological safety, uh, what it might look like?
1: So, like, we know that um, psychological safety, what it is, it's a belief that the environment you're in or the context you're in is safe or risk-testing. Okay. So, if you know that you you can speak up with ideas or questions or concerns, or you can even highlight the mistakes of a leader, and that's going to be welcomed and valued, and it's not going to lead to negative repercussions for that team member.
0: Yeah, okay, yep.
1: Yeah, and so you know the research and has shown that, and, and Google found that psychologically safe teams way outperformed non-safe teams by a long shot. And so, it's basically, a fancy way of saying group trust.
0: Right. And okay.
1: Yeah. So trust is between like two people, and but yep. psych safety is between the group. And gotcha. This is like a super important um, concept, particularly in industries where there's high risk involved. So you're thinking about aeronautical, medical, or nuclear or military. Yes. Um, you know, you really need to um, ensure psych safety, you know, particularly because you know, for army, they've got this mission requirement that often puts its members in into unsafe situations. So if you think back to yourself, like all the dangerous environments. You've been in where things can go terribly wrong. Yeah, like imagine if there's people who saw it coming, but like didn't say anything or didn't feel yeah, safe okay. to, and then someone gets hurt or even someone dies. Like this is this is a this is a problem. And so, as a leader, fostering um, psych safety is really critical because you know army is going to be a dangerous place, and you can make it less dangerous dangerous if you allow people to speak up without fear
0: of retribution, um, feeling like it's safe to do so. Yeah, of course. So it becomes paramount then. Um, And if I can, you know, we're really talking there that the leader needs to set the environment, right? You know, look at the group, understand the group, uh, set an environment where that trust uh, can build and therefore the psychological safety comes in it. But I suppose as the follower as well, um, is them being empowered enough to be able to speak up uh, or, or to have their say.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Fantastic, um, Jim. If I can, well, I've got some time. Here. You know, some leaders may think um, that we can't have everyone in the group voicing their opinions. You know, sort of building on from the psychological safety we our discussion we just had. You know, the leaders setting the environment, um, people within the group. You know, the followers. Uh, let's let's t- call them that for today. You know. Not everyone's comfortable in voicing their opinion. It could be a rank mismatch. Um, you could be new to a group. Um, you could you might not want to sort of stick your head above the parapet, so to say. Um, you know, so then how do we, how do we set the environment for that? Um, is there, I suppose, the need for decisive action there? Uh, or, or what does a follower say at that point? Like, how do they strategize and then voice their opinions within the group?
1: So I think I'm going to make two points on this. Yeah. I think what people need to realise that um, a lot of leaders will go, I don't want everyone speaking up. Yes. Um, but you have to remember that psych safety is speaking up only in the best interest of the group. It's not speaking up to be, you know, like, I don't know, pro- provocative victim or vexatious or like personal, ga- or, you know, trying to like cause trouble. Yeah. Psych safety is common good. And, you know, I think that, you know, there is a tension between leaders wanting to um, have, you know, the power. Like sometimes, you know, like you said, in time-sensitive situations or when there's the need for decisive action, like there should be that hierarchical leadership. But then on what I'm saying is that it needs to be, you know, site safety where there's more of a egalitarian type leadership. And I think what That's a good right. leader does is they know how to oscillate between the two. So. I just want to bring up this really interesting research where these um, researchers did an analysis, I think it was like over 5,000 Himalayan mountain climbing expeditions. So this is involving over 30,000 people. And interestingly, they found that the climbing troops who had more hierarchical, more you know, command and control st- structures, they had more people reach the summit, but they had a lot more people die. Oh, okay. Where no, yeah, the ones that were in the more egalitarian low-power distance where people felt safe to speak up, a lot yeah. less people died. So, like, to bring back to you guys, like, do you, do you want less people to die under your watch? <laughs> of
0: course, yeah, of course.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, so, you know, like, I suppose what the question is, like, how do, how do you create it? Like, yeah, yeah. What, what can you do practically as a, as a leader to make sure that there's psych safety your in your, um, your organizations and there's just yeah, some, exactly. there's some, there's some good tips so um, I'll start with one of them um, we know this is one of the most effective ways is to articulate belonging indicators okay so this goes back to that primitive brain again um, and so what belonging indicators are they provide clear messages that um, that you're you know you're one of us yep. here is a safe place to give it effort it's going to be seen and heard it's going to be rewarded and the way you do this so there's all the body language cues mm-hmm. so like you know eye contact and you know taps on the shoulder um all the active listening stuff but actually it's more about what you say and it's really like a you know steady pulse of interactions that frequently and authentically say hey you're one of us and you can actually use this um when you're giving you know constructive criticism or when you're doing performance reviews you can say like here's an example you can say to someone hey, I'm giving you this feedback because you're part of our team and you know we, so you're using those mm. group identifiers, our, we, us. Yes. So yeah. I know, you know we have high standards and I know you can reach them. Gotcha. And what's even better and more effective at creating psych safety is using future belonging indicators. So this would sound like, you know, i I think this advice would be super helpful to you in the future when I get you to run that exercise or that mission next, blah, blah. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, you can understand that. What it does, it, these, these statements sort of answer that ancient question like, am mm-hmm. I safe? Um, you know, what's my future with these people? Um, you know, can we face dangers together? Yes, yeah. So yep. you can see – does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, it, it definitely does. Um, it's fascinating to be able to have the, the time to discuss this, you know, and for our listeners um, listening in here today as well to go through it in detail. You know, you've raised yeah. some, some very good points so far today, and I'll sort of link a few things together if I can. Um, you know, we we're talking there, you know, setting the trust within the team. You know, there, there's certain actions a leader has to do, and we spoke through, you know, the ABC approach that there. There's, there's actions that the follower has to do, you know, and that's really, I suppose, critically thinking about what's occurring within the group, strategizing their, their thoughts and their input, you know, to, to really voice their opinions uh, or voice their position, but without constantly calling out the leader or, or, or having a, an opposing point of view. Um, but to build, you know, that trust, you know, um, and to build that environment, it takes time, right? Um, and we need yeah. to, as leaders you know to to build the environment for our followers um, take some risk uh, here and there you know but if we we spend the time uh, we understand the group we build that sense of belonging um, that then turns into your psychological safety which you spoke about Um, and then that probably really set us up for you know, the uncertain operating environments, you know, using a terminology, VUCA, for example, volatility, uncertainty, complexity um, and ambiguity uh, environments. You know, we spoke in our opening uh, address there, you know, preparing an army for accelerated warfare. You know, with everything we've discussed so far um, today, Jim, what are your thoughts then on... Well, first, if I can ask you to unpick VUCA for me um, and then how do we, uh, as an army, and then within that, you know, as a leader and a follower, really set ourselves up to operate in those environments?
1: Yeah, this is a really um, good question, really pertinent in these environments at the moment. So what I'll, what I'll do, I'll just break down VUCA um, yeah, great, potentially the neuroscience that's happening in your brain and what you can do about it. So, Thank you. So re is any, any situation where like there's volatility so there's changes are occurring at fairly high speed and then there's uncertainty so uncertainties where like our normal models that we've used to you know understand and operate in the world just don't work anymore um, yeah. like we've got no like and this is a definitely uh, uncertain time because we've got no idea what what works and what doesn't and then there's like um, complexity so it's the degree of special et- Special training or technological sophistication, and actually, you know, surpass the processing of any single human brain. So, you know, one leader can't get get it all, and then there's ambiguity. And so that means we're, we're views, um issues uh, that are happening around us, and you know, particularly for the army, like the army members themselves are becoming less homogenous and more diverse. And there's no one way of looking at something, and then Rather people are bringing to... their backgrounds. Yep. So I think, you know, we, we can say that we're living in VUCA times,
2: which, right.
1: you know, requires pretty specialised, effective teaming. Um, and, and leaders have now got to lead and make decisions um, in environments where they may only have finite knowledge of, like, the areas of expertise that are required. So, for instance, you know, cyber intelligence, human terrain, counterinsurgency, like, or engineering stuff. Like, you've got to know it all. Yeah. Yep. It's really hard for you to improve. Proficient in all of these domains. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what you actually need to do now is be able to safely and smoothly oscillate between that more hierarchical leadership style, when you've got time pressure and you know you've got to be decisive, yes. to more of an egalitarian leadership style when you have to draw on the technical capabilities of the team member, and you've got to say, hey, you can take the lead. You know. Um, you know more about this than I do. But, you know, that takes, like, safety and it takes yes, yeah. a leader to give up their ego and say, hey, um, you know better than me, right? So yeah, certainly.
2: it's yeah. you really quite sort hard of s- to
1: do.
0: Well, of course, yeah, it would be tough, um, especially when we're used to, to leading in a certain way within a, a military context um, or environment. Um, but it goes back to that uh, setting the conditions, doesn't it, as the leader, you know, understanding who's in your team, what their skill sets are. Um, building those agile and adaptable teams that you can then, you know, throw at a mission set or, or throw at a problem set, but draw from the group uh, the expertise to inform the, the way forward or to inform the decision.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree with this. And I think there's nothing more powerful when you sh- when a leader shows great strength and says, look, I don't have the balls to, you know, I've got the ball to say, I don't know, I'm authentic, you know, about my weaknesses, um on my yeah. vulnerabilities and I'm not going to try and cover it up and just basically say hey guys do not know what do you think and then like cause there's no way that you know officers can really um be an expert in everything cuz you you're posting in and out every 2 years so yeah you know you're not going to have the the um technical expertise so i think you know leaders really so followers really want to know that the leaders are not going to put them at risk cuz they're worried about saving space. yeah you know i think it's really important that um that people are okay with saying I don't know because, you know, when you, when you get into a stress state and, you know, your brain gets activated, either the leader um, feels threatened um, mm-hmm. about a new environment or then the subordinates don't really trust the leader, yep. what yep. happens is, um, you know, you get this amygdala hijack and you actually lose IQ points. So okay. if people feel like they're positioned in a team and that goes for a leader, They've shown on um, tests that you actually lose IQ points in terms of short term memory and decision making, and that, you know, you produce cortisol, stress hormones. And so when you've got that in your brain, you're definitely more reactive, um, more myopic. You actually shut down your logic and reasoning, and that takes up a lot of cognitive real estate. Um, You know, all of those stress thoughts about, you know, am I being perceived as a good leader or the, subordinates going, oh, am I part of this team? And so pretty much, mm-hmm. you know, your team's running around on half a plane. So, uh, yeah, it's super important to create that psych safety. Yes. Um, yeah. So you can, um, you know, have trust, trust in, in yourself, trust in the, in the team, and then you can, you know, seamlessly move between those leadership styles so you can be prepared for that VUCA environment, which is you know, incredibly uncertain.
0: Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And it's not easy, though, is it? I mean, you're looking at the VUCA environment there, you're looking at applying the right leadership style or technique to the specific situation that you're going into, and that might change, you know, day to day or week to week. But it's important to to know yourself as a leader, um, being self-aware, um, so you know, knowing how you're going to react to to an environment. But importantly, I suppose you were saying there as well. Don't always be afraid as a leader to show some vulnerability. So shared vulnerability, like you said, you know, you might not always have the answers. You know, by saying that to your group who you've spent time developing and, and building, that in turn speeds up trust, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I, you know, if you can say, "I don't know," what do you think? People, people really appreciate that.
0: Yeah, it gives you buy in, into the um, the problem at hand. Um, so, Jim, hey, look, we spent a fair bit of time talking about uh, how to build um, trust. You know, how to build psychological safety, some some leader and follower behaviours there, etc. So then from your point of view, what prohibits inter-team cohesion? So we've gone all the way to build it up uh, and we think we've got it pretty good. How quickly can we uh, break it down <laughs> and and, um, and sort of affect the good work we've done there? Uh,
1: this is also a really good um, question. So to answer this, I have to go back to the biochemistry and yep. evolutionary history. Um and we know that Mother Nature is a great way of punishing behaviours that will potentially lead to our death, like not being part of a team, mm-hmm. and those and rewarding those behaviours that would lead to great group success or what we'd call pro-social team behaviours. Okay. And involved, in this and it's called oxytocin. So, have you guys, have you heard of oxytocin?
0: Oh, I have, but if you can uh, unpack it more for us, that'd be fantastic.
1: Yeah, so this is an amazing chemical. Some p- people might know it as the attachment hormone, but it does so much more than this. So it's basically, yeah, Mother Nature's reward to, to make us be nice to each other. <laughs> and it does lots of things. So it makes us want more social interaction. It actually improves your memory. Okay. improves your attachment. It improves your ability to read emotions on other faces. Yes, It increases your situational awareness and the body postures of your team. Okay. It's a buffer against um, social stress. So it has antidepressant effects. It increases pain tolerance, which is really good in your job. Yeah. And it also increases your motivation to work within the team. So it's it's essential for building trust. Right, okay. um, So this is the the hormone you want. You want more of it. Um, And there's this really interesting... um, phenomenon that this combination of oxytocin plus um, testosterone creates this state we call the collective challenge state it's okay. really fascinating so it's when like high testosterone alpha man work together in dangerous environments for a common goal and often you know against a common enemy or a common problem yep. this creates this like an intoxicating biochemical combination of emotion and it's often referred to as war love so it's you know, it's described by guys like it's like nothing they've ever felt before, and yeah. they would literally say, "I would die for my oppo." Um, I will, you know, I would do anything to protect him in the fight. Yeah. Um, may not necessarily have a beer with him on the weekend, but in that <laughs> moment, I'd fight for the death. And this is this, you know, collective challenge state. This oxytocin plus testosterone kept our primitive ancestors alive. Yeah, so okay. it's a really great state to be in because it makes you fight through. Terrible um, situations together. But um, just going back to oxytocin on its own, it actually can have a dark side. Right. And you know, you asked Sam, you asked the question like, what prohibits inter teen cohesion? Yeah. Well, ox- oxytocin can do this. So we know that it can increase your in-group bias, so your in-group favoritism. So you say i love my brothers they're, they're everything to me but those guys over there on that other team i hate them and i don't want to work with them and it can create jealousy and can actually create out group derogation
2: right um, okay yeah so it's
1: the, so this is the hormone that makes you tight makes you insular makes yeah. you a really formidable fighting force but it also can make you um, very difficult to work with if you're not part of the in-group. So it kind of might explain why some, you know, particular unit, units have trouble working together. And I think you need to be very aware of this. Yeah,
0: And I couldn't that imagine are- it would be easier to break down those stovepipes either. I, I'm sure those barriers, you, know, you form a tight bond as a group, you know, you, you realise success through the group, therefore become proud of the group and want to, to achieve more. Um, but then be quite a strong barrier, I'd imagine, between you and others.
1: Yeah, definitely. And so the great thing is that we're really smart humans. Yep. Um, people in leadership positions have this big prefrontal cortex that is actually designed to override these types of primitive um, drivers. And so, you know, if you want to increase inter team effectiveness um, between your your group and another group. There's okay. there's a formula for for doing this, and we, okay, and we can we can go through this if you like. Yeah, let's do it. So, um, so for you as a leader, um, I know often you guys have got to work with like you know other government agencies or you know even non government agencies, and um, from an outsider, sometimes when you you're faced with a sea of uniforms, big guys, um, you know, for people who are not in the military, it can be quite overwhelming. So. You know, and if you've got to work with that group it's really important you know going back to that neuroscience that you've got to placate that primitive brain and as a leader you've got to find ways to create quick trust yeah. um, you may be working with these people just you know for a short time or you know you, you've got to, you've got to get on with the job really quickly but it's essential that you create the quick trust first before you can go on and do the things that make you so competent so of course um, there's a really great way to create um, instant trustworthiness and it's mention a weakness or a drawback okay. in the first instance. So in doing this, what you're doing is you're creating instant credibility so that everything after that you say is seen as trustworthy.
2: Yeah. And
1: yep. so, like, I don't know, like if you walk into a room, you can joke about how maybe, I don't know, you're a bad shot and that you actually need, you know, people like you around so you can protect or, I don't know, you've got to come up with something that's authentic.
2: Yes, yeah.
1: Um, but still kind of, you know, breaks down that, that barrier of like, I'm a big, competent, formidable force. You yeah. know, you need to get into that, that human touch.
0: Yeah, so almost so, making light humor of the situation to sort of break down some barriers and build some human understanding there.
1: Definitely, yeah. You, you have to do it. Otherwise, that person that you're talking to, is like their, their primitive brain is standing like, is he dangerous? Is it You know, like... Of course. If he, if he, he's not one of me. He's so different from me. He's got a uniform on. He does different things to me. So you've you've absolutely got to um, try and create likeness. Mm. So all, you know, we're very diverse humans, but but you can find something that's similar to another human if you try. So even something like you're you're both parents or you like the same sport, it's of critical importance that you find likeness in the first, you know, Couple of minutes of interaction.
0: Yeah, so you're, then, so, so you're really building that common understanding between the two. Yeah, finding something that you can leverage off uh, or we'll, we'll discuss together on um, to break down some of those initial barriers. And let's be honest, we all make assumptions, um, and we have all have a bias towards people when we first meet them.
1: Yeah, yeah, particularly in the military. And so, like when you walk into an office or walk into an environment, you, you scan their office and say, "Oh, look, they've got a picture of a." Fishing on the wall and then yeah. talk about fishing and you actually have to spend time engaging in that social lubrication. Like a lot of people think, oh, you know, blah, blah, waste of time. It's really important yeah. because unless you do that, they will not really trust you or, or they they, w- they will feel separate from you and they won't work with you. Yeah. And another, another thing you should do, like when you've got two teams coming together, you need to actually just tell them you are now part of this team. Give, yes. them, give it a name. And give them a sense of cohesion just by naming it. You know, research has shown that people will co- cooperate that with that team, even if they've been in that team for a few minutes or if they've se- just seen them on Zoom. Yeah. Actually, naming "we are a team" using "us," we now you know um, words is, is really effective. You wouldn't you wouldn't think so, but and then the they start to gr- uh, filter out the outgroup um, indicators, and they. They they don't see the, you know the different you know race or sex or, or jobs they're yeah. starting to look for in group indicators. So that's one um, is to you know try to get quick trust, try to um, look for similarity, yes. try to um, name the team together,
2: yeah.
1: and then um, the third one is to articulate a sense of purpose um, of that you've got a common goal, um, which is kind of you know everyone knows that. Uh, another one is to create external competition.
2: Oh, okay. Very, yeah. very
1: effective way to yeah. create in-group cohesion is to have an object of, uh, I mean, enemy or, or situation that you guys have to battle against together. Of course. Really effective at doing that. And like, so you can, I don't know, doing sport, um, you know, like a game of cricket or, um, or anything that, that, you know, has an external we need to work together to, to beat, yeah, super effective and yeah. um, so you could make it fun it doesn't have to always be like an enemy situation no, and then course. the last one is create moments that that allow you to secrete oxytocin Okay. so you put the groups together with physical proximity, this is post-COVID of course <laughs> eye contact, shoulder taps, taps you engage in reciprocity yes. um, so you give like a small concession like you'll say okay we'll come to your office to meet, right? that small concession Creates really um, good faith, and then um, humour. Humour is yeah. so good at creating oxytocin, and even dark humour is, is even better. <laughs> and then, with that, you know that's how you can create inter-team cohesiveness really quickly. Yep.
0: Point. Hey Gemma, that's fantastic. Thanks. Uh, five very quick, handy hints there for all of our leaders um, listening in today to sort of develop their teams. Uh, moving forward and look there's things we can practice every day right we don't need to be on the battlefield we don't need to be getting ready to go uh, on deployment you know we can practice this um, at work in a staff environment um, on the sporting pitch etc going through and importantly like you said before look we post every couple of years you know there's a chance there every single time to build and develop a new your new team whether you're the uh, appointed leader or part of that team
1: Yeah, you guys get heaps of practice at this coming into new teams, and you know if you do it right, you can be really effective at it.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And it's all about applying the right leadership to the right situation. You know, there's no sort of one set answer that's going to get us through every problem set we find, but it's about being astute enough to identify the right one.
1: Yeah, and I think if you just remember that there's really basic, primitive human behaviours that are bolstered by neural architecture that are at play now. And if Mm -hmm. you are aware of those and then you know how to use those, you know, you can be, you know, super effective. And just knowing that psych safety and trust is paramount, um, it will put you in good stead.
0: Fantastic. Hey, Gemma, thank you very much for your time today Uh, and and for really, you know, speaking with us on on some of those key topics we we unpicked today. You know, we, we spoke in detail there about understanding the neurobiology of effective teaming, you know, really the importance that the trust, rapport and psychological safety uh, mean to the group, you know, and then that allows us to then operate in those uncertain, complex and ambiguous environments as well. Um, of particular note, I, I thoroughly enjoyed your five factors to increase team effectiveness. Uh, I'll use those in um, many postings to come and with it, many new teams that I have uh, and I'll practice it to see the results uh, as I get better at moving forward. Hey, thank you again for your time. Um, it was great to have you on the show. It was much appreciated.
1: Yeah, thanks, Sam. Always a pleasure and, um, and good luck.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. And uh, listen, to our listeners out there, that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. I look forward to you joining us on our next podcast uh, from the Centre for Australian Army Leadership.